0: Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. Well, good morning. How's everybody feeling? And I'm excited. I hope you guys had a great Labor Day weekend. I hope you the start to your college football season has been better than mine as an Ohio State fan. But somebody said they were surprised to see me this morning, and I thought about wearing all black, but I still support the team, no matter what. Um, and man, I'm excited this morning to be continuing on in our series called "Uncomfortable," where we're just walking through. Maybe slower than you. You wish I would walk through, but we're just going through the Book of Mark just a little bit at a time. And and what I. Love about the book of Mark is it's written from a very different perspective than the other accounts of Jesus' life. So, there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible. They're called the four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Luke, and John all write to help inspire faith in Jesus in the hearts and minds of people who don't know him. But Mark writes with a different audience in mind. He's writing to Christians who have become so comfortable with Jesus that they've actually missed him. This is why all throughout the story, the people who should know Jesus are the ones who miss Him. It's the religious leaders who studied the Scripture. They, they don't recognize Jesus for who He is. Even the disciples, the ones closest to Jesus, Greg talked about last week in Mark chapter four. Jesus is in a boat with His disciples, and they're kind of crossing to the other side. Jesus goes and falls asleep. A storm kicks up, and the disciples are afraid they're going to die. Now, this is uh, must be a particularly bad storm because many of these disciples had been fishermen. They grew up. Up on the sea. They, they were used to navigating through things, but even they were scared. They thought they were going to lose their life. They wake Jesus up. They say, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to die? And with a simple word, Jesus calms the wind and the waves, and they turn around and they say, who is this man? It's like, what do you mean, who is this man? You've seen him cast out unclean spirits. You've seen him heal people. You've heard his teaching. How can you not know who Jesus is? But my fear is that for many of us, especially if you grew up around here in the American South, that we're so familiar with the stories of Jesus. We're so familiar with hearing the same sermons over and over that we've actually become unfamiliar with Jesus. In fact, a few years ago, um, some archaeologists set out to recreate what they think is a picture of what Jesus looked like. Now, bear in mind, a lot of times when we picture Jesus, we think of you know the the, the long hair, blue eyes, white skin. I mean, you've seen the pictures of Jesus. I mean, I'd love to know his skincare routine, right? I mean, not a wrinkle on him; it's flawless. But when they recreated Jesus, they recreated him as you would think—a first-century Jewish Palestinian man dark skin, kind of short curly hair. And I remember the first time seeing this picture and thinking, man, that's a shock to the system because if he walked in or if I saw this man hanging naked on the cross, would I think that that was the Jesus that I worship? And I think far too often we become guilty of following a Jesus who looks a lot like us. In fact, I think for what passes for a lot of Christianity is basically political partisanship with a thin veneer of Bible verses so we feel good that Jesus is on our side. But when I read the Gospel of Mark, what I realize is Jesus isn't concerned about being on your side. He's asking you to follow him and be on his side. Jesus doesn't just want to rubber stamp your life. He's asking you to give up your life to follow after him. And so story after story, we see Jesus kind of flipping the script. Mark always shows the people who should know Jesus, they don't. And that's supposed to make all of us a little uncomfortable and reassess, are we really following Jesus? Now this morning in Mark chapter 5, we're going to look at one of my favorite encounters that Jesus has. Then I want you to pay attention because Jesus is going to encounter three different, there's three different main characters in this story, and I want you to pay attention with how he interacts with each of them. So we're going to jump into Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Let me kind of recap where we are. Jesus had been doing ministry in a primarily Jewish region, and he had become so popular, the crowds were so big, that it had become impossible for him to do ministry. Which is kind of funny because we think if you're going to start a ministry, you want crowds. You want a lot of people. That it's successful. Like, like success in ministry is a lot of people showing up on a Sunday morning. But for Jesus, it was the people showing up that actually prevented him from doing the work he was called to do. And so Jesus had to leave that region. He crosses the sea, and he goes into a primarily Gentile region. Last week, Greg brought a phenomenal message where Jesus actually casts a demon out of a, out of a man, and the people get so scared, they say, Jesus, go back to where you came from. So he gets back in the boat, and he goes back to this other side where the people are waiting for him because he had to leave before. They're waiting for Jesus to come back, and that's where we pick up Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, my little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. And so Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressed against him. So in these first few verses, we meet the the first character that Jesus encounters. It's a man named Jairus. Now what we learn about Jairus is first that he's a leader in the synagogue. So so to kind of give you a picture of how the Jewish religious system was set up in that day. You had a temple in Jerusalem. That's where you would go and you would make sacrifices. And the high priest would go in once a year and meet in the presence of God on behalf of all the people. But in surrounding towns, they would have these little outposts called synagogues. You wouldn't go there to make sacrifices, but you would go to worship God and and you would hear teaching. In fact, Jesus would often go to synagogues to teach when he traveled. If you read the book of Acts, the the early Christian leader Paul would start in synagogues in town. He would go and he would start teaching. And Jairus is a leader in the synagogue, which means that he's a well-respected member of the community. He's probably fairly wealthy. He probably had a lot of power, a lot of influence. I mean, Jairus essentially was living the American dream thousands of years before America would show up on the scene. He had everything that a lot of us want. Power, influence, financial stability. Apparently he had servants that would attend to his uh, various needs. He had everything. But something had happened in his life. His daughter had become sick. And it's a reminder to me that we chase after a lot of these things, but have you ever noticed in moments of crisis, you don't really care how much money you're making. In moments of crisis, it doesn't really matter, you know, oh, how big is my house? Do I have the newest car? Do I have the latest iPhone? You can have everything the world tells you is success, but in a crisis moment, the only thing you need is you need healing. Healing. You need salvation. You need Jesus to rescue you. And so Jairus has heard that Jesus has come back, and he actually puts himself in a precarious position, because we read in Mark chapter 3 that the Jewish religious leaders were ready to kill Jesus. They were done with him. They wanted him gone. So so he's probably heard stories about Jesus blaspheming, Jesus teaching things that he shouldn't be teaching— And he knows that it could cost him his job. It could cost him everything to come and seek healing from Jesus. But if the stories that he's heard about Jesus are true, then he really can heal his daughter. So Jairus risks everything. He comes to Jesus and he falls on his knees. It's a sign of worship. He's saying, Jesus, I'm I'm depending on you. I'm giving you everything. I'm willing to give up everything. Would you please save my daughter? And I love Jesus's response here. Jesus doesn't ask him a question. He doesn't say, well, tell me, how, how have you been following my teachings? He doesn't say, well, have you been giving to the poor? Have you sold everything? Have, have you been doing what I've asked you? He doesn't. It just says Jesus went with him. It's a reminder to me that for Jesus to show up in our life, guess what? It's not dependent on anything that we do. I'm thankful for that because I know there are plenty of times I drop the ball, plenty of times I mess up, plenty of times I don't measure up. But God's faithfulness is not dependent on my faithfulness. God is faithful even when I'm not faithful. And when Jairus is at the end of his rope, when he has nowhere else to turn, he turns to Jesus and Jesus says, all right, let's go to your house. Now it's at that point that we're introduced to the second character in the story. And that's the character of the crowds. And it says here that the crowds were pressing into Jesus. Now, the New Testament was primarily written in Greek, and the Old Testament primarily written in Hebrew. This word here that's translated pressed in, it actually means crushed. So so these people are crushing Jesus. You know, I'm in the football kind of mindset. And so you watch these big upsets, and, and what happens whenever there's an upset? The, the, the crowd storms the field. And if you ever watched these post-game interviews and, you know, they're trying to talk to the coach, but people are like all around him and he's got to get a police officer to push people away. I mean, that's like Jesus, right? This is like Beatles hysteria before the Beatles were even around. I mean, people wanted to get close to Jesus. They're leaning in there crushing him. He's trying to answer Jairus's request. But in the meantime, the crowds are so desperate to get something from Jesus that they're crushing him, they're pressing in and possibly preventing him. Him from getting where he needs to be. Are we tracking so far? Because in the next verse, we're introduced to the third and final character in the story. Look at verse 25. Now, a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing, for she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. So the third character is a woman, we don't even get her name. She's just known as a woman, and she has an issue with bleeding. And to be quite frank, what we know about this woman is this is menstrual bleeding. And it's been going on for 12 years. It says that she spent everything she had on doctors, on on medical advice, and guess what? She couldn't be healed. In fact, instead of getting better, she only got worse. Now, from a medical standpoint, this is an awful situation. But certainly, even within the Jewish context, there were some spiritual ramifications as well. Because in the Jewish community, if you were bleeding when you were on your menstrual cycle, you were considered unclean. In fact, if you look at Leviticus, there's a whole bunch of things like you couldn't be around other people because you might make them unclean. People couldn't sit on the same things you sat on. Now, why that is, that's a whole different sermon for another time. And we went through the book of Leviticus and talked about a bunch of that stuff. But but suffice it to say at this point, because she was unclean, she was not able to go and worship. She was told that she was unholy, unworthy, and that God didn't want to hear from her. And this didn't happen for a week a month, a year, but for more than a decade, she was not allowed to have a relationship with God. Furthermore, in that culture, if she came into contact with somebody else, they would have been made unclean. Think of this like religious cooties. Do you guys remember cooties from elementary school? Listen, I, I know all of us were pro-vaccination back then, right? Circle, circle, dot, dot. Now I got my cootie shot. Because you did not want someone with cooties to touch you because then you had cooties. And in your path, we knew about pandemics a long time ago. Now, in the same way, if you were unclean, if you came in contact with someone who is unclean, then you were not allowed to worship. Then you were not allowed to be around other people. So think about this woman. For 12 years, not only could she not have communion with God, she wasn't allowed to be around other people. I know over the last year and a half, we know all about social distancing and stay at home orders and everything else. And the reality is we did that for a few weeks and it was difficult. But could you imagine being separated from the people you love, the people in your community for 12 years? I mean, she is in a desperate spot. But just like Jairus, this woman has heard that Jesus is back in town. And she's heard the stories about him. And she believes if she can just come and touch his clothes, then she would be healed. That seems like a strange thing. Why would she want to touch Jesus' clothes? Again, the English translation doesn't help us a ton here. It actually says if she could touch his cloak, she would be healed. Now, why on earth would this be the case? Well, back in Jesus' time, uh, they actually, the good Jewish people, would have a prayer shawl much like this. You know, I had to get my prop this morning. But they would wear their prayer shawl around, and so Jesus likely had something just like this. Now, this is something commanded for all the Jewish people. Why would they be commanded to wear some kind of shawl like this? Let's flip over to Numbers chapter 15, because I know when you came to church, you wanted to read Numbers chapter 15 this morning. Numbers 15, Verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites, and tell them that throughout their generations they are to make tassels for the corners of their garments, and to put a blue cord on the tassel at each corner. These will serve as tassels for you to look at, so you may remember all the Lord's commands, and obey them, and not prostitute yourselves by following your heart your own heart and your own eyes. This way you will remember and obey all my commands and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, your God. So what on earth is God telling Moses in Numbers 15? He said, I want you guys to have this cloak that has tassels on the end. And in particular, there are four tassels to be attached to each of the corners, and they're supposed to have a blue cord running through the end. And they're done this way so you would remember God's command. Now track with me here for a minute. These tassels on the end... The Hebrew word for these is zit-zit, all right? Everybody say zit-zit. You guys, I don't know if you remember like early 2000s, like swing music, Zoot Suit Riot. I always think of zit-zit riot. I don't know. It's just me. But the zit-zit was constructed in such a way that there are eight chords on the end. One of them is blue, just like this. And there's five knots, Now, on top of that, we talked about in our Revelation series that in the Hebrew language, each letter in the alphabet has a numerical value. Do you remember this? And so the word zit zit actually has a numerical value of 600 plus five knots plus eight chords is 613. That's the number of commands there are in the Old Testament. So the idea is that as you pray, you would hold these tassels and you would pray that you'd be able to follow God's commandments. In fact, there was a story that rabbis would tell about a man who once went to a brothel, and when he took off his prayer shawl, he laid it down, and he saw the tassels, remembered God's command, and was convicted that he shouldn't be there, so he picked up his shawl, he went home, and repented of his sin. So this is something that all Jewish people would wear. In fact, and I, don't have, a, I have a handheld mic, so I can't do it, but they would actually cover their heads. This was called their prayer closet. Hear Jesus talk about his prayer closet. He didn't have a closet in his house, right? In college, we actually had a literal prayer closet. But what they would do is they would cover their eyes so that their whole focus would be on following God, praying Him, and obeying His commands. Now, if you know the story of the Old Testament, though, the Jewish people did not keep those 613 commands. In fact, God had told them, if you follow the commands, they're not arbitrary commands. He was trying to create an alternative society in the world. The world is a broken place, and if you will follow my commands, you'll be a different kind of people, and through you, I'm going to rescue the world. But the Jewish people had turned their backs on God, said, you know what? We don't care about your commands. We don't care about your kingdom. We care about our kingdom. And after hundreds of years of rejecting God, God said, I'm not going to force myself on you. Man, if I was God... I don't think I would give people the freedom to reject me. But see, that's why I'm not God. He's a good God. He's willing to allow us to say, we don't want a relationship with you. And as a result, he removes his protection and the Jewish people are conquered by their enemies. And so at the end of the Old Testament, the Jewish people are wondering, has God given up on us? Did we mess up so much that he doesn't have a plan to save the world? Did we mess up so much that he can't forgive us? Have we screwed this whole thing up? And God sends prophets to remind the people that, no, 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 I'm not giving up on you. In fact, there will come a day when every wrong will be made right, when I'm going to put everything back together again. And in Malachi chapter 4, this is the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, he says, this is how you will know that that day has come. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. Matt, what on earth are you talking about? Says, here's how you know when the day has come that every wrong will be made right. That the sun of righteousness will come and there will be healing in its wings. See, I forgot to tell you an important part. The English translation of the word zitzit is wings. See, these were called the wings. And they would know that God had come back to rescue his people when the Messiah came and there was healings if you touched the wings of his garment. If you would reach out and touch the tassels, you would be healed. So this woman wasn't arbitrarily saying, if I just reach up and touch Jesus' clothes, maybe there's some magical power in there. No, no, she was saying, I believe Jesus is the one who's come to set every wrong right, who's come to take everything broken and put it back together. The one who has come from God is Jesus, and if I can just touch his wings, then I will be healed. So she pushes her way through the crowd. She reaches up and she touches his garment. And if we flip back over to Mark chapter five, verse 29, it says, instantly her flow of blood ceased and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. She reaches out, she touches the wings and instantly she's healed. I find this so interesting that she had the faith to reach out for healing. And I know there's a lot of people who abuse teachings on prayer and and healing and that if you just believe enough and if you just give enough and if you're just faithful enough, then Jesus heals. And I think sometimes in my life, at least for me personally, it's caused me to come to a place where maybe I, I don't reach out to Jesus when I need him. Maybe I don't ask for healing because I'm afraid that maybe that's not what God has for me. But could it be that maybe for some of us today, we need the kind of faith that this woman had just to reach out and to touch Jesus, just to reach out and believe that there can be salvation, there can be healing, there can be wholeness. Now at this point, Jesus knows something's up. Verse 30. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you and yet you say, who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. Now, I don't know what this means, but Jesus felt power leave from him. And he turns to his disciples and said, who touched me? His disciples said, Jesus, are you crazy? The crowds are crushing you. Everybody's touching you. Everybody's all up in your business. What what do you mean who touched you? Everybody did. He says, but Jesus was looking around. See, it's interesting to me. There were a lot of people touching Jesus, but only one of them received healing from Jesus. Why is that? Because the crowds were there, they were curious, but they didn't actually believe who Jesus was. This woman had faith that Jesus was the Messiah. There was healing in his wings that she could reach out and be made whole. And I think the question we have to wrestle with is are we close enough to Jesus? Do we believe him for healing or are we just one one of the the crowd crowd pressing into into him? him. So So you can can be be close to Jesus and miss out on what he has for your life. You can touch Jesus and not experience transformation. You can show up at church. You can be in a life group. You can serve on the dream team. You can go on mission trips. You can give hundreds of thousands of dollars away and be close to Jesus, but not actually know Jesus. See, my heart for you as your pastor is that one day when you stand before Jesus, you wouldn't think, oh man, I missed it. But that right now, you'd have the faith to reach out to believe Jesus for who he says he is. Now Jesus continues looking and this woman knows she's got to do something. So in verse 33, it says, the woman with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told the whole truth. Daughter, he said to you, her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So this woman says with great fear and trembling, she comes forward and confesses what had happened. Why do you think it is that she was filled with fear and trembling? I think it's because she wasn't supposed to be there. Her very presence put everyone else at risk of being unclean. Not only that, if she touched someone, what would happen to them? They'd be unclean. And who did she touch? Jesus. And so she's afraid that maybe Jesus is going to be upset because he's been made unclean. This is so good. When she reaches out and touches Jesus, it's not Jesus who becomes unclean, It's she who becomes healed. See, sometimes I think we're afraid to approach Jesus because maybe we have too much junk in our life. And you're afraid to reach out. You're afraid because what if Jesus is upset? What if he's angry? And I wonder if Jesus is saying, no, no, no. It's not your sinfulness that's contagious. It's my holiness that's contagious. And so she also drops to her knees in worship, saying, Jesus, I had no other option. I just had to reach out to you. And I love what he calls her. Did you notice what he called her? He says, daughter. Because for 12 years, she'd been told, you're not a daughter of God. You're not part of this community. He says, you're, you're my daughter. And not only that, he says, you've been saved and you've been healed. That word saved there in the Greek is the word sozo. It doesn't just mean physical healing. It means spiritual healing. See, in, in one instance, not only was she cleansed from her sickness, but she was restored to the community. She was able to be around people again. She was able to be in the presence of God again. And I think sometimes we can look at stories like this and we can think, man, what kind of a backwards people is this? They would like excommunicate somebody for that. Like They have no control over that. And you know what? We we can't be around them or else they might make us sinful. We certainly don't do that, right? Except maybe... We say, yeah, we'd love for you to come to church unless you're gay. We'd love for you to come to church unless you don't share my theological viewpoints on things. We'd love for you to be a part of our community unless your life is messy. You think for some of us, we're trying to get crowds. And when crowds are gathered and the messy person shows up, what's our tendency? Let's ignore the messy person because that's too much time, effort, energy, and let's keep focusing on the crowds. But we don't worship a God who focused on the crowds at the expense of the one. We serve a Jesus who left the 99 to be with the one. We, We serve a Jesus who would say, you know what, crowds, that's fine, but this is someone who needs healing. This is someone who needs restoration. And I've said this before. One of the most impactful quotes to me is that when the church starts being the church, it's going to get messy, The goal is not to have a clean community, but to do life together. And I don't know about you, but my family's not perfect. In my family, we argue, and we fight, and we have disagreements, and we don't always see eye to eye on things, but we don't stop being family. And that's what the church is supposed to be, a family where we welcome in the sick, the poor, the wounded, the broken, those who've been told that you're unholy and God doesn't love you. Those who've been told that you can't be near me or else something bad might happen to me. It's about us embracing the people that the world has rejected. That's who we are called to be. Now, amongst all the commotion, you might have forgotten that our story didn't start with this woman. Our story started with Jairus. The leader of the synagogue, the guy who had everything. Isn't that fascinating? The person who had everything and the person who had nothing both come to Jesus on their knees and worship and surrender everything. What happened to Jairus? Look at verse 35. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? Jairus finds out that his daughter has died. And think about how frustrating this has to be for Jairus. Jairus says, Jesus, this isn't fair. I was here first. I asked you and you were coming to my house. But the crowds got in the way. This woman stopped you. This isn't fair. I don't know about you, but I've found myself in that position before. I've been praying that God would answer my prayers, and it's so hard to see God answer their prayers, and their prayers, and his prayers, and her prayers, and it feels like God's not doing anything in my life. I mean, Maybe, maybe you know what it's like to pray for children, and you've been wrestling with infertility, and yet your friends, and your coworkers and your neighbors, they all seem to be having kids all the time. Or you've been praying that God would bless you with your dream job and you're stuck in this dead-end rut while everybody else is getting promotions and new jobs and moving across the country to live out their dreams. Or maybe you've been praying for breakthrough in your marriage and it feels like it's falling apart, but every time you open Instagram and Facebook, everybody else's marriage seems perfect. And you wonder, God, why haven't you shown up in my life? Why haven't you answered my prayers? But I'm thankful that for Jesus, death is never the end of the story. And so he continues. Verse 36. When Jesus overheard what was said, and actually there's another translation of overheard, which means ignored. I kind of like that one better. When Jesus ignored what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. And he did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, James's brother, they came to the leader's house and he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. I mean, can you imagine the audacity to laugh at Jesus? Jesus, you don't understand. Jesus, you think she's asleep. No, no she's dead. They laughed at him and he put them all outside. He kicked them out of the house. If you laugh at Jesus, he might kick you out of the house. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which is translated little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years old. At this they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So Jesus hears word that this little girl has died and he says, believe. And so he goes to this man's house and they're weeping and wailing. Jesus says, don't worry, she's just asleep. He said, no, no, she's dead. And by the way, just to kind of make a point here. I think sometimes we look at people who lived centuries before us and we kind of treat them like they're dumb. Like, trust me, she was dead, right? It wasn't like Jesus was like, no, she's asleep. I see her breathing. Don't you guys see? No, she, she was dead. But see, for Jesus, death wasn't the end of the story. Jesus had a different perspective on it. Jesus knew what was about to happen. Jesus has a different perspective on your situation. See, what you think is the end of the story for Jesus might just be the end of the chapter, This might be a a, a two-part episode. There's a cliffhanger. You think you're at the series finale, it's just the season finale. And here, Jesus is ready to work, he's ready to move. They laugh at him, they don't understand. But he goes in and it says he takes her by the hand. The Jewish people weren't supposed to touch dead people because it would make you unclean. But what have we seen? When people encounter Jesus, it's not their uncleanliness that's contagious, it's his holiness. And he touches her and then he says, get up. And she does. And I love that because we know from the stories of Jesus, he didn't have to touch her. He could have just spoke the words and she would have risen from the dead. He does it again later. But I think he makes the point to touch her. So people know your uncleanliness doesn't scare Jesus. Your past doesn't define you. Your mistakes, that's not who you are. He's not scared. Bring all your junk to him because wherever there's death, he's ready to bring life. Then I think that there may be some broken parts in our life, some areas that we've been afraid to be honest with Jesus about. Maybe you've been afraid to go all in because Jesus sounds too good to be true. Oh man, he's too good not to be true. And today, if you're here, there's healing available in his wings. So we're gonna end our time together with communion. So in just a moment, I'm gonna pray and we've got communion stations set up around the room. And as you feel led, you can take the body and the blood of Jesus. We even have some journals there. You can take those and just process your thoughts. But as you do, I want you to consider this. There's three people, three characters that Jesus encounters. There's Jairus, the guy who has everything. And at the end of the day, he needed to surrender it all see Jesus move in his life. Maybe you're here today and you have everything, but you've reached a crisis point. Marriage is struggling. Maybe relationship with your kids is faltering. Maybe financially things are tight. I don't know what it is, but maybe what Jesus is calling you today is just to say, I'm going all in. Jesus, I know I have everything, but all I want is you. Maybe for you, you're like this woman. You've had this issue of bleeding. He's not physical. Maybe it's trauma that you've been wrestling through. Maybe it's approval from a parent that you never thought you could get. Maybe it's a past that you think defines you. Maybe it's lies that were spoken over you, that you were told you are unholy, you are unworthy, and God could never love you. Maybe for you today is just the faith to reach out, to touch his wings and be healed. Or maybe you find yourself in the crowd. And you've been close to Jesus, and you've seen Jesus do some pretty amazing things in other people's life, but you've never experienced that for yourself. Maybe today is the day you step out of the crowd, you fall before the feet of Jesus, and you experience his healing. Which character are you in the story? But today I wanna to make something else available as well. Just like I said earlier, I think that there's been a lot of weird teaching about healing and, faith. And we walk away with a story like this and we think, well, you just need to have enough faith. And if your prayers haven't been answered, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Jairus had faith and his prayer still wasn't answered in his timing or in the way he was expecting. It's not about buying a blessing or anything else, but I do think that maybe for some of us, you've been hesitant to pray for that healing. You've been hesitant to pray for God to show up. And so today I'm going to invite you to reach out and to touch his wings. So on one side, I'm going to Put the prayer shawl. There's nothing magic about this. I bought this on Amazon, all right? It's not It's not about the shawl itself, but maybe, maybe for you while everyone else is getting communion, you just need to come and pray. I'm gonna be on this side, and if you don't even have the words to say, you just need somebody to pray for you, I'll pray for you. Because I think we have a holy moment here, an opportunity to lean in to who Jesus is and experience transformation in our lives. So I'm gonna pray, and then we'll have communion in a time of prayer, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? God, we are so thankful. We're thankful for the ways that you've shown up in our lives, time and time again. I'm thankful, God, that even when we have everything, all we need is you. And so I pray for those who've come in this morning. And maybe they have it all, but today is the day they're ready to lay it down at your feet. I pray for those who are broken. I felt alone that today they'd be restored to community and find healing in your wings. I pray for those who are in the crowd. They've been around you that today would be a day of salvation and they would step out and not see you work in other people's lives, but experience that healing work in their own life. Jesus, today we just believe. We just reach out to you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. You can have communion as you feel led. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.